Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All right, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a pretty exciting entrepreneur that is going to really share us with this with us his story. You know, we're going to be learning a lot about the cannabis industry, uh, going from regulated to hyper-regulated, and, and really building and scaling, um, you know, into something meaningful. I think that his story, you know, like we, you're going to find it exciting. I definitely did. So without further ado. Let's welcome to our show today, uh, our next guest, Charlie Batchel. Welcome to the show. Uh, Alejandro, thank you very much for, for having me. Excited to be here. So born in Chicago and raised in Arizona. So what triggered that move? Uh, that move was, yeah, I, I was, uh, I didn't have much of a say in it. I think it was about three, three uh, years old at the time and um, moved out West. The family moved out West. It was, it was great. I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed growing up in Arizona. I kind of had best of both worlds because my my extended family were all still here in Chicago. So this is where we spent holidays and vacations. Um, at, uh, growing up in Arizona was great. But then, you know, after undergrad, I I was headed to law school and I wanted to do law school in a big city. So I came back to Chicago for law school. Got it. And I know that the, at an early age, you were able to really see your mom uh, also being a rock star in her own field in, in real estate. And I'm sure that you really were able to learn a lot from 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 seeing her, no? really putting all the effort and all the energy into into building something and creating success. So so what did you get out of that? Yeah, without a doubt, it's uh, it's one of those things that you you absorb because you're 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 just a part of it. I remember having to. Uh, to go to the office with her at nine o'clock at night or, you know, first thing in the morning before dropping me off at school. And, um, just the, uh, the intensity that she brought to creating, uh, her business. Uh, I, I recognized it, I think more as I got, uh, further along in my professional career and, and had to do the same. Um, but it was, it was a great, uh, great experience, great role model to have. And why, why law? What got you into law? You know, I think it was a, it was a mix of, um, you know, I did my undergrad in, uh, in finance and, um, not, not seeing a clear path, uh, upon graduation, uh, with, with anything that I had, uh, I would say too much passion for. Um, I really enjoyed my, my legal business courses that I'd taken. And then I also had a, another great, uh, role model, my older sister 
who was uh, four years ahead of me. She just did, she graduated from Northwestern Law School before that. And um, so it, it looked like a, a very interesting opportunity to continue with an education that that had some uh, excitement uh, from the courses I'd taken in undergrad and and uh, gave me the opportunity to come to Chicago and and uh, and and have a, um, you know a great school to uh, to attend and and experience living in in uh, urban environment for the first time. And something really interesting here is that so you you got you know the law from your sister and then you you merged that into the real estate that you were seeing from your mom. So you went into private practice. Is that right? It's very, very true. Uh, and I never actually looked at it from that perspective before, but you're totally right. Um, uh, came out of law school, went to work at a, at a small practice that specialized in a couple of things. And one of them was uh, real estate. And that was, that was something that I, I, I'd found a tremendous amount of interest in. And, uh, and fortunately for me, I was kind of given the reins there to, take on a lot more responsibility than I probably should have because, uh, the other, the, the partners of the firm really focused on the other disciplines more. That was their favorite. Um, but real estate kind of helped pay the bills, but they were more than, more than happy to have me, um, step in and, and take a lot of that burden off their shoulders. And it, it allowed me to, to learn, um, that industry, um, pretty well in a, in a fairly quick period of time. And then for seven years, you were involved with all types of mortgages. So what were you doing there? Yeah, the the, the, the real estate background, uh, you know, had, had quasi prepared me for an opportunity that came up um, to be um, in-house general counsel at a, at a company. At the time, it was, you know, maybe a, a large, small mortgage bank called Guaranteed Rate. Uh, they had about 200 employees when I, when I joined uh, as general counsel big Chicago presence, um, you know, a small regional presence, no real national presence yet, but that was, uh, that was all about to change for us. And now that company is in the, in the thousands. So, I mean, pretty, pretty interesting growth too, no? Yeah, it was, it was an incredible, incredible learning experience. I joined, I, I got into the, the mortgage banking industry, uh, in the summer of 07. So, you know, within a year of, of uh, really residential home lending in the U.S. being the root cause of an economic downturn around the world. And uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was not uh, status quo. It wasn't business as usual. The entire, the entire universe changed. Uh, I, can, I can tell people I was a part of an industry where I, I literally saw the sky fall. Um, when, when your industry is identified as that root cause of, a, of an economic collapse, Needless to say, things change uh, immediately, and um, you know that industry went from quasi unregulated to hyper regulated overnight. And uh, it, it was a bit of a patchwork regulatory framework because we were state chartered, so Illinois was different than California, was different than New York, um, and uh, you know now that that industry had a, a ton of negative stigma associated with it. So it really it really made us. Um, uh, I would say focus on on executing on a on a business model that was uh, heavily rooted in in uh, compliance and also um, doing the right things, uh, transparency, um, building trust with a customer base, um, and again, all under the umbrella of absolute uh, guidance with regulations. Um, but as we as we get more into the cannabis side of things, you'll you'll see how that really prepared me to 
to um, to change the way that cannabis was being approached uh, as well. Absolutely. So you went from an industry, as you were saying, where the sky was falling to an industry where the sky was opening. So, so how did you how did you uh, fall into into the industry? Like, how did you start incubating the idea for for Chris Collapse? Because especially here at Guaranteed Rate, you were for like seven years. You had the uh, steady paycheck, you know, the nine to five kind of thing. And and why, especially as a lawyer, I mean, typically lawyers don't go into business. So uh, so what happened? Yeah, no, it, it, it's a great question. Um, and, and honestly, the story of Guaranteed Rate helps tell the story of Cresco Labs, too, because not only, you know, did we survive that that economic downturn, that mortgage meltdown, but our our organization thrived in post-regulated mortgage banking. Um, we 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 realized really quickly that, you know, you couldn't you weren't going to fight that momentum you needed to embrace uh regulation you need to engage in the regulatory process and you needed to do regulation well as a business model and so uh, it was an incredibly entrepreneurial um environment that we worked in there and we we literally saw that as our opportunity to go from being a relatively you know insignificant regional player to capturing uh, an incredible position in the rebirth of, of banking. And so we, you know, scaled that organization from about 200 employees to 3,500 employees, licensed and operational in all 50 states, 150 plus brick and mortar offices in a four year span. Um, so it was very, you know, it, it wasn't nine to five at all. It was, it was six to 10, you know, and it was, it was, it was making, making a difference, changing the way an industry was going to be looked at and done and, and experiencing some incredible success in doing so. So then when I, when I saw cannabis come across my desk, you know, in, in 2013, uh, to me, it was, it felt so familiar. Um, again, you have an industry that was going from unregulated to hyper-regulated overnight on a state by state by state basis, because all of these, uh, cannabis laws are state laws and they are absolutely siloed from each other. So, Illinois is very different than California is very different than New York, et cetera. And again, another subject matter that had a tremendous amount of negative stigma associated with it. And so I would say the vast majority of, of lessons and strategies and experiences that were developed in the mortgage banking space, I found uh, parallels uh, to in the way that I thought that cannabis was going to unfold. Um, you know, it, it just, it felt like I'd read the book before and I kind of knew how it was, it was going to proceed. And, and here at Guaranteed Rate, before you went with Crest Collapse, is where you met your co-founder. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. Three of us work together, uh, at, at, uh, at Guaranteed Rate, uh, myself as general counsel and, uh, executive vice president, uh, Rob, uh, Sampson as COO and, and Joe Caltabiano is really the, the, the largest loan originator there. Um, the three of us you know, worked a lot together on a day-to-day -day basis, and uh, but we're also friends outside of the office, and so that's kind of how this, the idea of this came to be. And you know, Alejandro, it was just it was it was obvious within the first forty-eight hours of looking at this, it was the most it was the most fascinating thing that I'd ever seen. Um, you know, it's it's rare that you see an opportunity come up that. You know, will impact the way that people think about medicine, uh, impact the way that people think about the criminal justice system, uh, was going to be a, a, a shift uh, in culture 
uh, not only at your you know local or state level or, or your country, everybody in the world, the world was starting to think about cannabis a little bit differently in 13. It was right when it was an inflection point. And then the fourth thing is you wrap that up in a, in a pretty interesting business opportunity. And I don't know how often those, those four levers uh, line up. And, and that was pretty clear to me immediately. Uh, this was something that I, I needed to look at. I also think it's really important for anybody who's an entrepreneur too. It's, it's not, a, it's not about spotting the good opportunities. Um, that's only half the battle. You, when you, when you can, when you can figure out how you can contribute to the development of something that looks like it's going to be a pretty incredible opportunity. I think that's where you'll, as an entrepreneur, you'll find a lot of success is the great opportunity matched up with some experience, some skill set, something that you're going to bring to the table too, to help help develop and create that opportunity or maximize that opportunity. And in this case, uh, Charlie, why why did it take a few years for you to dive in full time? So the um, the law was passed in August of thirteen, and then uh, it, the applications though uh, weren't uh, released or you know, for about a year. Um, so we spent a year really preparing, uh, planning, developing the, the strategy, the mission, putting a team together, um, doing the entire ground game um, to make us a viable applicant when those applications were going to be due, which was September of 14, and then uh, submitted the applications in September of 14. Um, there were only 21 cultivation licenses uh, that were going to be issued in the fifth largest state in the country, you know, a, a very interesting limited license structure. Um, and uh, we submitted three uh, just to increase our odds of winning one. There were 158 applications submitted. We ended up getting the highest score, second highest score, third highest score. So we got three of the 21 licenses. Those were awarded, I think, in February of 15. And then that's when, uh, you know, I think it was a, a, a week or so later that I had resigned from guaranteed rate and, and uh, started running Presco full-time. It's it's really amazing because, you know, when you're mentioning 158 for the 21 licenses, I'm sure that if this was to open up today, it will be in the hundreds of thousands. Would yeah, there would definitely be a, a lot more. Uh, there, would, there would be thousands of applications submitted. It, they, but, you know, Illinois also did, every one of these states does things differently. So, uh, Illinois made it pretty difficult to apply. It was expensive. It was it was a it was a big commitment to even get it across the finish line. So that's one of the ways that they kept the the applicant numbers a little bit lower was they made it expensive and an incredibly arduous process to get through. Um, but I also think it resulted in, you know, if you look if you look at the um, cannabis industry today, arguably five or six of the top you know, 10, 12 companies in the industry are based out of Chicago. Mm. And one of the things that, that I wanted to ask you is, I mean, it's, it's amazing the way that you guys were able to spot this opportunity um, because not everyone else did. And now, you know, we're seeing how all these cannabis companies, they're like spiking, you know, on, on the value that they bring to the market, on, also on their, on their value itself as a business and the incredible growth that they're experiencing. How do you spot opportunities and how do you know you know that it makes sense to to go at it well you know it's a it's a good question and and i don't know that i'm you know this is really my first uh entrepreneurial venture for me it was it was just a the stars aligned um i think you have to be open you have to be observant um and you have to recognize certain patterns that are going to be 
um, a part of really uh, uh, successful opportunities. And for me, it was it was this this you don't have to do a demand study for cannabis, right? I, I think at the end of the day, cannabis has been around for five thousand years um, of recorded human use, and you know it's it's a part of society, even though it's been federally illegal for a couple generations. But there's there's a lot more history behind it, um, even even as it's become more socially uh, acceptable um, in in uh, in in different social settings um, that maybe it wasn't 10, 20 years ago. It still had this sort of illegal, uh, federally illegal cloud over it. As you saw, states start to develop, um, and you know, fortunately for me, Illinois was was the original author of these more regulated, structured, um, compliance focused versions of cannabis. That was really the, 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 the thing that had tipped me off to the great opportunity, um, was okay. Now cannabis is starting to look more legitimate. Um, they clearly just based on the language of the law, they want, they want medical professionals, they want legal professionals, people with business acumen, um, to be a part of this. They're, they're limiting the number of, uh, of uh, operators that are going to be able to um, participate uh, to a number that, you know, was controllable and, and also created that uh, very interesting um, business opportunity, um, just, you know, simple supply and demand uh, economics that, um, you know, sort of wrapped it all together. And, uh, again, I, I think it's so important to not only be able to spot the good opportunities, but that good opportunity has to be married, uh, with something that you can contribute, you can bring to the table. Otherwise, you know, you, you might find success, but you're not going to find, um, you're not going to find the thought leadership. You're not going to find that positioning at the top of of potentially leading the development of something if you're not going to be able to contribute to it and add to it. So for me, that was, that was what I saw in cannabis. Got it. So, so definitely you saw it and you put the application in it and all of a sudden you heard back and it seemed that you guys had some work to do. So what happened there? Yeah, there was a, there was a blessing and a uh, challenge all wrapped into one. It was, uh, like I said, we weren't, we weren't planning on winning three of the 21 cultivation licenses, but, um, we, our applications were successful and we were presented with the opportunity, uh, to, to have three of the 21. Uh, the problem was we weren't, we weren't built for it. Uh, we, you know, the, 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 the business plan, uh, didn't, didn't, uh, wasn't structured for, for owning three of the 21, um, from a capitalization standpoint, that was, that was, a, a, a challenge. We, we had to go out and we had to, we had to really solidify the the capital needed to execute on building three, you know, ground up from raw land, 40,000 square foot cultivation facilities, um, from scratch. We, we did not, uh, we didn't have all the tools needed to be able to pull that off. But, um, the good thing was we had a really solid, uh, core team with, uh, with relationships and access, um, that would allow us to, to, uh, to fight through put ourselves in a position to execute on, on the, the great opportunity that we, uh, we'd received. So that's, that's what we did. I, we, we like to say for the first, we really didn't become a cannabis company until that first harvest. Uh, before that we were a, uh, we were a capital raising, uh, construction and, uh, branding company, um, for the first six, nine months of our existence. 
Because what ended up being the business model for the people that are listening to get it? Yeah, so the business model was always going to be focused on the consumer uh, packaged goods aspect of this, that cannabis was going to be transitioning from this sort of commodity, this unbranded raw material commodity that everybody was familiar with into this highly regulated, um, third-party tested, certified, um, child-resistant packaged, um, you know, tamper evidence sealed cased consumer uh, packaged good. And, and that was the, that was the focus for us. That was, that was what we saw that was changing. That was going to be different. That was going to allow this industry to stabilize into a CPG and not just be a, a commoditized, um, agricultural, um, industry. But, uh, again, the, the original business model for us was one out of the 21 in, in Illinois, not three. Um, so being able to execute on that though, and figure it out, uh, really then almost by default, also put us into a leadership position um, in the development of this, this new industry. No, no other group had received three licenses. Um, there were a couple others that had two, but most only, only received one license. And uh, so we, we became this sort of de facto uh, leader in our home state. Um, our home state, though, that model, that highly regulated compliance-focused model, started to become the um, the foundation upon which further uh, newer state laws across the country started to be based. So again, now you have us being thought leaders in 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 really the uh, um, pole position in a home state that then also put us in a position to be seen as leaders uh, in the further development of this industry across the country. And talking about growth, uh, I mean, we were touching on it earlier. But wow, like in at the start of 2018, you guys were about 100 people. And then by the end of 2018, you guys were 500 people. How are you able to really manage uh, that level of growth without, you know, losing on some of the key essence of the culture? Yeah, well, and then if you fast forward a year, uh, we ended 19 with about 1,200 uh, employees. So uh, the growth, it, it continues to um you know, it continues to stretch us, uh, but it's it's one of the the things that we enjoy most about this um, is is really building building a fundamentally sound organization in a in a hyper growth industry. We're you know we so it, it makes you uh, remember and focus on the foundational elements that are required in a in a in in any strong, successful, and viable long term viable organization, which is your people. Um, and your culture and training. And, you know, I, I say, I, I don't know that we've, uh, we've mastered it or, or found perfection here by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, it's, uh, it's remembering what makes us successful and continuing to focus on it, which is, I, I think, also leading to our continued success and our continued growth. Because in terms of uh, being able to finance that growth too, how much capital have you guys raised today? Um, in the aggregate, uh, you know, I think in the equity side, we're, we're, uh, in 200 plus. And then, uh, most recently we executed a, um, a credit facility in the amount of a hundred million, um, that we have access to now. So, um, you know, a few, a few hundred million dollars to, um, to create, you know, the, the assets and the, and the platform that we've, uh, we've created and are executing on. So tell us about this process of uh, going public on the Canadian on the Canadian uh, stock exchange. Uh, it is it's a it's a little bit different than uh, the U.S. exchanges, and 
for those that aren't familiar, it's a very weird, um, interesting dynamic that exists because the U.S. operators, uh, you know, that are are regarded as the, the the best operators in the space, the most fundamentally sound businesses, true, you know, real revenue. Um, some of us EBITDA positive, um, great business models. Uh, we're not allowed to participate on the U.S. exchanges on the Nasdaq or the NYSE because of the federal legality in the U.S. Uh, however, uh, our Canadian counterparts, um, Canadian operators that that don't have operations in the U.S. do not have operations in the U.S. They they only operate in in a country where they are in compliance with federal laws, the Canadian federal laws. So the NASDAQ and the NYSE um, are comfortable allowing them to uh, list and and have access to our U.S. capital markets. So we're on the um, Canadian Securities Exchange. That's where you'll find uh, most of the uh, premier U.S. companies until um, you know something uh, occurs in the U.S., whether that's legislation providing uh, protection in the in the banking area in the U.S. exchanges or uh, a change to the, the federal legality, um, that's when we'll be allowed to uh, transition to the to the U.S. exchanges. Got it. Very interesting. I know that when when it comes to um, the transactional side, you guys have also been very active on the on the acquisitions. So how how do you see the acquisition strategy on the buy side as one of the key elements of of your guys's growth. For, uh, for sure. And it's a great question. The, the overall growth strategy boils down to a couple of, of uh, pretty simple but fundamental things. You, you know, in, a, in an industry where you have uh, the state by state by state nature of the, of the, the laws and the regulatory structure, um, having the most strategic geographic footprint is very important because you cannot ship anything across a state line. So it's having licenses and having operations in you know, the states that you've identified as being strategically significant becomes very important. Um, and then, you know, it is uh, having meaningful material positions in those states. It's not enough just to have a, you know, a small retail store in a, in a, in a state of 13 million people. You, you need to have, you need to have market share. You need to have market penetration. You need to, you need to be in a, in a top three leadership position. That, that That's our, those are sort of the, the parameters that we design for ourselves. So, um, when you're looking at creating that strategic geographic footprint, there's two ways to acquire it. You either you participate in application processes when the state is going to issue licenses, or you've got to buy your way in. Um, some states have already had their application processes, so they're not you're not going to have the opportunity to win uh, your way in. You've got to you've got to do M&A. And so for us, we've done a we've done a good job of of doing both. You know, we, we won licenses here in Illinois and in Ohio and in Pennsylvania. Um, but then we've also had to, had to, uh, execute on M&A in states like Massachusetts and Arizona, um, and, uh, and Nevada, um, where they're, they're not having, uh, additional application processes, but we definitely identify those states as strategic states. So typically on, on acquisitions of this nature where, I mean, it's interesting because not only you have the the integration, which is a piece, but then also you have to accommodate within that integration all the regulatory aspects as well. So, so how how do you guys think about you know integrations? You know, being this a process that you know you've done multiple times. 
Yeah, very, very good question because, you know, and not all, not all M&A or integrations are created equal. Um, some can be nice, simple bolt-ons um, and others are, you know, our, our uh, origin house uh, acquisition. You know, that's a, that's a different business channel. Um, distribution, true third-party distribution in a, in a state where we didn't have much of a presence to begin with, that's, a, that's definitely a different integration uh, plan and lift. So making sure that you've got the resources in place to be able to to execute on on these you know great opportunities or challenges that we find um, is key, and and that's you know, I, I think one of my you know primary obligations as CEO is to to make sure that the uh, the organization um, and the leaders within the organization have the resources that they need in order to be successful, and if they're successful. Um, the organization is going to be successful. So that's, it's one of our focuses and it's learning experiences. And again, each state is different. Um, I tell people all the time, uh, this industry is, is nothing but uh, challenges and, and potential problems. And uh, if, if, uh, if you don't pride yourself on being a problem solver or somebody who turns uh, challenges into opportunities, this probably isn't the industry for you. Um, it moves really fast. It, it requires a, uh, a ton of a different, a different level of engagement, a lot of capital and, uh, and the, the, uh, the joy in, in, uh, solving problems or overcoming challenges. So what is typically uh, for you from a leadership perspective, the thought process that goes behind uh, tackling a certain problem? Um, yeah, that's a good question because there's probably as many different answers as there are different types of problems. Um, but it, I think it starts first with uh, understanding and, and reminding yourself of the mission, vision of the organization. Um, you know, the vision of our organization is to be the most important company in cannabis, um, not the largest, um, not the most amount of states, not the most amount of retail locations, but, but truly the most important company in cannabis. And that means a lot. There's a, there's a lot in that statement, but we, we do pride ourselves on understanding uh, the needs of all the stakeholders that are involved in this developing industry and, and working to um, provide as many sort of yeses uh, as can be created for all those stakeholders in the industry. That's, that's, that's what creates importance. Um, but also the mission is to normalize and professionalize it. So when I'm faced with a challenge, when I'm faced with a problem, um, we love, uh, uh, we love creative problem solving. We love elegant solutions. Um, and it's always in furtherance of the mission and the vision of the org. Got it. So I know that the OZ for other industries, you know, people don't really care, you know, like who is stepping in on new roles at the government level on, you know, at a federal, at a federal level, not on the government side at a federal level. But obviously, you know, on a space like this one, you know, when you have a governor that leaves and another one that comes in, you know, that definitely, you know, like introduces all types of um, uh, changes, you know, for an industry like, like this. So, so tell us about, you know, how, how, you know, how that impacts really the, the execution and, and some of the challenges associated to it. Sure. Yeah. You know, and we've, we've been there and we've seen it. Um, even just if we, we look at Illinois alone, um, this Illinois, the, the medical cannabis compassionate use of medical cannabis act was, was passed and signed by a very, uh, progressive democratic, uh, governor, 
um, in August of 13. Um, and then applications were submitted in September of 14, still, you know, with, uh, with him as, as the governor of Illinois. Uh, and then he lost his reelection campaign a couple months later. So the, the licenses were actually awarded by a fairly conservative, uh, Republican, uh, governor who was intent on, you know, sort of cleaning up the swamp and Springfield and, uh, was not a big fan of cannabis and didn't, uh, didn't want to, um, really assist in the development of the industry. in as much as he was literally only going to do whatever he was obligated to do. But, you know, that again, it's one of those challenges where, um, you know, we, we, and we enjoy that process. We, we, we take it upon ourselves to, to create the environment that would allow that same governor who, whose administration did not like this subject matter to pass uh, new legislation in consecutive uh, legislative sessions that made the program better for patients, uh, better for operators, and more, um, you know, easily to, easy, easy to administer. Um, and that was not through, you know, that wasn't something that he was setting out to do, but that was one of the things that we, we, we created an opportunity from that challenge. Um, it's also, again, why, why we focus so much on being the most important company in the cannabis space. Um, it is to be able to create that, those scenarios, create the culture to create the professional business, uh, atmosphere to where this industry will be respected regardless of, uh, maybe prior um, anecdotal or, uh, antiquated views on what cannabis is or what cannabis can be. Uh, fortunately for us, you know, it, it seems to be the, the public, uh, perception and momentum is on our side at this point, medical cannabis, I think polls higher than anything. And I'm, I'm not saying that in, in jest or hyperbole, um, you know, medical cannabis basically across the country has a 90 plus percent, uh, approval. Um, percentage. And there are many things out there, I think, that have a 90 plus percent uh, people are in favor of it. Um, you know, adult use cannabis is less, but it's north of 60. Um, so it's a, it's a fairly popular uh, subject matter today. Um, and, and hopefully we see that continue with uh, further, more progressive uh, developments on the legislative front at state levels and at, at federal levels in the, near, in the near term. And where do you think that the industry is heading as a whole? You know, I think um, I think you're going to see cannabis become one of the larger um, you know verticals of consumer packaged goods. I think this is it's shaping up to be a very dynamic um, CPG, right? You 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 have products that are uh, applicable and appropriate to people who are looking at this from the from the wellness uh, perspective uh, as an alternative to either some prescription or over the counter medications. You have a, a very large segment who look at this as um, just a, a general quality of life enhancer, um, whether it's how they de-stress, whether it's how they get a, a good night's sleep, how they um, you know, relax when they come home, minor aches and pains. Uh, and then you also have a segment that uses this for, you know, as a replacement for alcohol and escape and um, enjoyment with friends. So, you know, very few things... Uh, can appeal or apply to as many consumers as as cannabis can. So I think you're looking at one of the larger segments of uh, of CPG in the in the next uh, uh, foreseeable future. Very nice. And I guess now 
you know, one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, I mean, you've been at it for, for a while. Uh, I mean, quite a, quite an exciting journey. Uh, and I'm sure that you've, you've learned a, a ton, you know, like through the ups, through the downs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, I guess if you had the opportunity to, let's say, go back in time and, and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Charlie that was thinking, hey, you know, like this seems like a, like a cool opportunity and, and maybe you were thinking about launching a business. If you had that sit down with that younger self, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why, knowing what you know now? <laughs> Great question. Um, there's, there's probably a, there's volumes that I could have, uh, I could give to myself um, that would have maybe better prepared me to not make some of the mistakes that we made. That said, I'm, um, I'm okay making mistakes. I, I think you learn, you learn uh, your biggest lessons by, by having some things not go your way and having to overcome it. I, I would, I would, uh, I would tell younger Charlie um, to, again, never stray from the, uh, the vision and the mission. I think, um, what that has created, uh, is a, is that, that position of leadership in the development of the industry, which is, is what we wanted. Um, it was nice though, to see it, uh, come to fruition. And, and, uh, there's been times where you're, you're faced with situations where you, you may want to make exceptions or you may want to deviate uh, from mission or vision, I, I think it's uh, my advice. I would give to younger Charlie is just a reminder to not uh, not deviate because if you do this the right way, um, you will put yourself in a position to be the leader of a of a incredibly uh, fascinating emerging industry um, that is cannabis. Very profound. So, Charlie, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to get in touch and say hi? Um, you know, I think, uh, information on the website is, is there, uh, contact information is there and, um, uh, yeah, information from an IR standpoint and just uh, general uh, public facing can all be found there. Fantastic. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for being on the deal maker show today. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.